going to be preaching on Acts 9, uh, verses 32 through 43 today. I'm going to be preaching out of the ESV, um, so that might be a little different than you guys are used to, but um, we'll have a lot of it on the screen behind me as well. Okay, so I'll read the text out loud, and then I'll lead us in prayer once more. Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with him. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you so grateful that you have poured out your spirit upon us, that we might know and experience your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've given us your word uh, to to speak into our lives, to transform us, to remind us of who you've made us to be and remade us to be by grace. Lord, we pray that through the scriptures today that we would see the resurrected Christ, that you would show us the beauty and the power of the gospel like we've never seen, with the scales fall from our eyes, that we might see Christ for who he is. But Lord, we ask not only that we would see the resurrected Christ, but also that we would experience the power of the resurrection in this place today. Lord, we, we need your power. We come here this morning from different places, from dealing with different things in life, but we all need you. Would your power bring change and healing and restoration in this place today? We're so grateful that the very same Jesus who walked the dusty roads in Israel and who we read of in the pages of scripture is present with us today. We pray that his presence would bring transformation in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a French philosopher named Luc Ferry. He's a self-avowed secular humanist. And he wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought, where he traces the development of thought in the Western world, talking about the different contributions that different cultures and societies and belief systems have made. And what Luke Ferry says is that 
all philosophy, all this yearning and searching for meaning in life, it ultimately comes down to dealing with the problem of death. And he argues, as an agnostic himself, that the Christian faith has the strongest and most coherent response to death. Here's what Luke Ferry says. The Christian response to mortality, for believers at least, is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is the kind of thing that even if you don't believe in it, you want to. That this, the possibility, the idea that death itself can be defeated, that there's something greater than the, the pain that we experience, that, that there's a fulfillment to the longings that we have, that this is what the resurrection is about. And when you read through the Gospels in the New Testament, they proclaim this good news that he is risen, that Jesus has conquered death. He walked out of the grave 2,000 years ago, began changing lives, and he's still doing the same thing today. But while you read in the Gospels about the resurrection, it's in the book of Acts where we hear about the people of Jesus experiencing resurrection life themselves. The book of Acts, you could say, in the church ever since, is the ripple effects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, we're looking at this passage in Acts chapter 9, where we get to see the people of Jesus experiencing resurrection life. And you've got two different, very different, yet difficult situations that both have the same remedy. What we've got in this passage is a story of a sick man, a dead woman, and a living Savior. So let's look at these stories. First, let's look at the story of the sick man in verses 32 through 35. Let's pick up in verse 32 at the beginning, and let me read this to you again. We'll walk through the passage. It says in verse 32, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So we immediately meet this man, Aeneas, and we don't know much about him except that he's paralyzed and that he's been bedridden for eight years. We just get a glimpse into his suffering. And I think one of the dangers when we read a story like this is to hear a description of his physical ailments and to focus only on that. See, we know that for this man who was paralyzed and bedridden for eight years, that His suffering was a holistic, comprehensive suffering. That there was more than just the physical pain that he felt. The the social shame must have been overwhelming for him, especially in that day and age where we think of today the kind of political correctness and even the the longing to reach out and care for those who are hurting, those who are handicapped. They didn't have that in their society. And so this would have been a man who would have been experiencing a high amount of social shame Because of that, relationally, he would have been isolated much. He would have been separated from much of the the kind of religious communities, the temple system, that this man's suffering and his pain was much deeper than the skin. This man's suffering and his pain was holistic. And holistic suffering requires holistic healing. And that's what Jesus brings. He comes proclaiming the kingdom of God. 
That's the message of God's comprehensive reign over all of life and over all of creation. And so Peter goes to this man, Aeneas, who's been overlooked, who's been alone, who's been in pain. And he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Isn't that beautiful? And the man gets up. Now, I want you to remember here that a miracle or a healing is not a party trick, okay? This is not just a naked display of power as if Jesus is showing off his power through what Peter does here. No, miracles have meaning. Miracles always have a purpose. Let me put it like this. Miracles reveal who Christ is. They restore what's broken and they remind of the hope to come. Think about that with this story. First, a miracle reveals who Christ is. That Peter goes to this man, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. In other words, Jesus is the great physician. Jesus is the great healer. And I love that Peter makes it so clear who's doing the healing here. Because Peter had been getting very popular. As you've read through the book of Acts, you've seen that Peter is a prominent leader in the early church, that many sought after him, that he had been a part of incredible experiences. He'd done great miracles and healings. And people are starting to think, wow, Peter, Peter, if I could just get to Peter, maybe I could get healed. Peter has this power. Peter is a great healer. Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. I think we need to remember this today as well because it's not uncommon that uh, someone experiences healing and then they attach that with either the, the situation itself or the person who prayed for them. Maybe, maybe some of you have the gift of healing and you've been able to pray for people and they've been healed and then they start associating that with you of so-and-so has power. You've seen this happen in the church at large, or you've seen this in, on TV with Christians, like where people start associating power and healing with the name of a preacher, with the name of, of someone who's praying for you. Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. It's a reminder of who Christ is, and not only who he was in the gospels, who he is for them in that day, who he is for us today. Christ is a healer. We need to remember that Jesus is not a magician. He's a Messiah. He came to heal as a part of this comprehensive work that he's doing of bringing God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. So miracles reveal who Christ is, but they also restore what's broken. When Jesus heals, he's bringing something back to the way it's meant to be. That this man was, <clears throat> was paralyzed, he's bedridden, He was made to flourish to the glory of God. He was made mind, body, soul, and the fullness of who he is to live for God. And he was in a place where he couldn't do that fully. But this this miracle, this healing, it's a work of restoration. And I think that goes different than the way that we often think about miracles or even healings today. Tim Keller puts it well when he says this, we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. 
Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. That God created the world with this beautiful vision of the earth rejoicing, his people delighting in his creation, living fully for him. And a healing is a glimpse, it's an inbreaking, both of what we were meant to be, what, what we were meant to live for and what we can have in Christ and what's promised to us in Christ. And that goes to the third aspect of this, is a miracle also <clears throat> not only restores what's broken, it reminds of the hope to come. In other words, healings are like a foretaste of the glory that is one day guaranteed. See, the Lord has promised that not only would, would we be able to experience healing uh, spiritually and physically, but he's going to bring healing and resurrection life, newness to the whole cosmos, to the whole creation. And yet he doesn't promise that we will receive all of that today. That, that one day that we know what's ahead for us is the fullness of healing and restoration But what we can experience now is a foretaste of that, an inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the midst of a world that's decaying by sin even now. I'll explain it like this. Uh, I love taking my kids to Costco. And my wife and I have four little girls. The oldest is eight. And uh, and so we, we go to Costco and we just became, this is like, you know, public service announcement. We just became a two-cart family at Costco, okay? Uh, we now have to get two carts, usually for the first, like, hour that we're there. The kids are in the cart, and then they get so much food piled on them that eventually they have to dig their way out and, you know, hold on on the sides. But we love going to Costco, but Costco's difficult. I mean, I don't know if you guys go to Costco around here, but you love it, but it's like a love-hate relationship, Right? Because I, I like to describe Costco, going to Costco and trying to navigate with shopping carts there, it's like trying to drive in Los Angeles, but without stoplights or blinkers, right? It's chaos, it's madness there. And so we go to Costco, but, but our kids love going to Costco. And you know why they love going to Costco? The samples, right? The samples are the best part of going to Costco. You go, you're navigating, you're finding everything. And then every once in a while it pops up and you get to have that little sample. And what is the sample doing in that? It's giving you a little bit of a taste so that you'll get something so that when you get home, you can have the full meal of it, right? That's why we love going to Costco. Well, these miracles, these healings, are like a sample. They're like a foretaste that God has said that one day that we are going to be able to sit down and feast at a banquet in the eternal kingdom of God greater than you could ever imagine where every, every wound has been healed, every tear has been wiped away, that the broken heart have been bound up and that we get to have this feast where the, 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 the glory of what we were made to be. And yet, we don't just have to sit around and wait for that. It's breaking in already. And what you have in this story here is, is an example of that, of a foretaste of the healing power of Jesus that will one, get, one day go to the ends of the earth. That in this story, this man named Aeneas experiences then and that we can experience today. So Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. 
He then says to him, rise. See that in verse 34. Jesus Christ heals you, rise. Now, I think this is a hint to the meaning of this whole passage. And let me just plant a seed that I I hope will grow in your mind as I keep going through this. The word in the original language of Greek here for rise is this word anastemi. It's the same word that will be used uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, the rising of Jesus. So let that seed start to grow as you can see what's happening here in the book of Acts and what's happening in these stories that we're looking at. He says, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. Isn't that kind of interesting? I mean, funny, right? Like this person hasn't been able to do anything for eight years, bedridden for eight years. And for the first time he gets up, he can walk. And what is Peter commanded to do? Make your bed, <laughs> right? Like, wow, like I don't want to run and jump. Like, no, he's got to make his bed right there. But you know what? I bet you Aeneas loved being able to make his bed. He hadn't been able to do that for eight years. And here he gets to do it. He gets to be restored by the grace of Jesus. So often in life, we take for granted the small things. We, because they're gifts of God's grace and we start feeling entitled to them because we get used to them. But they're still gifts of God's grace. I was talking to a woman in our church just last week who has been sick for a long time and she hasn't been able to come to our Sunday gatherings because she can't handle being around so many people. And, uh, and, and I was talking with her about that and she said, Jeremy, I miss gathering with the church so much. She said, I listen to the podcast and I connect with people and I'm a part of the church. But she goes, people don't realize how powerful and how important it is to be able to gather with other believers and sing where you can hear each other's voices and listen to the word of God preached with the spirit moving amongst us, uniting us together, to be able to receive of the Lord's Supper as a family meal at the banqueting table of God. She said, people don't realize how special that is. I'm sure making his bed was a privilege for him to be able to do as he, as he had been healed by Christ. It goes on in verse 35 to share the, the effects of this. And it says, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, this is a beautiful statement. And I don't think it's just kind of a random, like, add-on. This is what happened at the end. I think when he says that they turned to the Lord, that this is a reference to what what the author of Acts, Luke, is really trying to show us throughout this story. Remember all the way back to Acts 1? Uh, We have like a a thesis statement in Acts 1 for the whole book of Acts. And it's in verse 8. It says this. Jesus said to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, so he's sending them out. He's saying, the Holy Spirit's gonna fill you. You're gonna go out and what you're supposed to do is witness to me. Jesus says, go out and witness to me. And that means you need to testify. You need to tell people about with your words, with your lives. You could say, you need to point to Christ. 
That's what it means to witness to Christ, to go out and say, look at him. Look how amazing he is. Look how beautiful he is. Behold the glory of Christ. That's what this story is about. And when you go out and point at something, you know what happens? People turn their heads and they look. And he's sending them out. And the disciples have gone out. They're on their way from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And they're witnessing to Christ. And heads are turning. And lives are changing. And people are walking this way, following their, their, their own desires, leading their own lives. And the disciples are saying, look at Jesus. Look at the resurrected Savior of the world. And heads are turning and they're turning their lives and they're following after Christ. They're becoming disciples. That's what you see happening. It was happening then. It's been happening ever since then. This is so beautiful. I mean, it's funny. I think within the reality family of churches, I kind of like to think of CARP as like Jerusalem. You know, like it started here, right? And it's like Jerusalem, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, Stockton, like London, right? But the reality is, is that we are far from Jerusalem. We are an effect of this. We're the ends of the earth that the gospel went forth. People have been laying down their lives, witnessing to Jesus saying, look at him in a way that's gone from generation to generation, from country to country. And here we are today, recipients of God's grace in his sovereign wisdom, in his mercy, and out of an abundance of his love for us. This story continues, this story of witnessing to Christ. Uh, there's a, a, a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth, and uh, Barth's a very interesting theologian. By interesting, that means I like to read him, but I don't agree with everything that he says. Um, and, but there's a story about Barth that, that always stood out to me because he was a, he was a, a prolific writer. Uh, he wrote a ton of theology books, and they're all really deep, and there's a lot of wisdom in there. And... Um, there's a story, though, that above his desk, where he did most of his writing, he had a picture painted by a man named Matthias Grunwald called Crucifixion. And it's, a, it's a painting of Christ crucified. But, but the key to this painting is that um, on the side, you have John the Baptist, and he's standing and holding out his arm, pointing up his finger to Jesus on the cross. And the, when, you, when you look at the painting, you see Christ crucified, but then you see John the Baptist pointing to Christ, embodying what he himself prayed, he must become greater, I must become less. And Bart said that he put this painting over his desk because he wanted all of his theology, all of his writings, any of his ministry to simply be a finger pointing to Christ crucified. And I think, what if we thought of our lives in that same way? That it was, it was Christ and in his love for us and his power, his compassionate power that we see on the cross. What if our lives were a pointer, a, a, a finger pointing to Christ crucified, witnessing to Jesus by the power of the spirit? That's this story in Acts. That's what we see and that's what we're drawn into. So that's this first story of uh, a sick man. 
Now this next story goes from a sick man to a dead woman. It's as if, it's as if like, oh, you thought that was bad. Like it gets even worse. So let's pick up in verse 36 where we're introduced to to another person in this story. Verse 36, it says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Now, uh, her name means gazelle. And Tabitha is the Aramaic translation of that. Dorcas is the Greek translation of that word. But this woman, Tabitha, it tells us, was a disciple of Jesus, and she was full of good works and acts of charity. I mean, I just want to pause for a moment for you to notice the way that it dignifies this woman in the early church. That, and, and for them, especially in their culture, this would have stood out to them. Uh, typically, you know, it calls her a disciple. That's the way it calls her uh, right off the bat. In their culture, you would have rabbis and you'd have disciples. Usually those disciples were men. That, that you wouldn't talk about a woman as a disciple in that way. But it puts her forward as a disciple of Jesus. It praises her for her good works and her acts of charity. You can see in the book of Acts already unfolding this this tension that Jesus is for the world. He loves the world and yet he's, he's pressing against the very norms of their society, dignifying this woman, holding up her place in the early church in such a powerful way. So Tabitha is a disciple of Jesus, full of good works and acts of charity. But now things had gone awry. In verse 37 It tells us in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So again, you know, the the, the last story we looked at with Aeneas, he was paralyzed and bedridden. Now it's a step further. The problem gets worse. It gets as bad as you can get death itself. By putting these stories back to back, it's as if, The book of Acts is reminding us, no matter how bad your situation, Christ is greater. Even unto death. It's it's showing us that the darker the backdrop, the brighter the light of Jesus shines. And this is dark. This is difficult. So let's look at this. Let's keep going here in verse 38 and see what happens. Verse 38 says, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now, what's incredible about this story is that it almost mirrors exactly another story from the gospels about Jesus. See, this is a story about a woman named Tabitha. There's a story in the Gospels about a little girl named Talitha. It's just one letter different. 
And this, this little girl, Talitha, um, is sick and dies, and her father, Jairus, comes to Jesus and asks if he can come to heal her. And Jesus comes, and it says he gets there. He asks people to leave the room. He goes, and he takes her by the hand, and he says, Talitha, rise. And then he raises her up by the hand. And so when we read this story in Acts of Peter going and clearing this room, going in, taking this woman by the hand and saying, Tabitha, arise. It's as if you can see Jesus doing this work through him. Peter, I think, is in, in many ways is mimicking Jesus. But it's not just that Jesus did that and so now Peter is imitating him and doing what he did. It's that Jesus is doing this through Peter. In the same way that in the first story, Peter himself said, Jesus Christ heals you. And this is what the book of Acts is about. I mean, remember in Acts 1 verse 1, Luke says, In my first book, O Theophilus, I wrote to you about all the things that Jesus began to do. So remember, Luke is is talking about the gospel that he wrote, the gospel according to Luke. And, And remember what happens in that gospel? Jesus is born and lives a perfect life, dies a sacrificial death, rises from the grave. All the teachings, all the miracles, all the stories. And Luke says, that was all that Jesus began to do. So he makes clear what's happening in the book of Acts. Jesus is not passing a baton and chilling out so that someone else can start working now. No, here's how I would describe the book of Acts in a sentence. Jesus is continuing his mission through the spirit-empowered church. That's what you see happening throughout the book of Acts. So Jesus is continuing his mission. And just how in the Gospels, we saw Jesus going to the lost and proclaiming good news. He's doing that through his disciples in Acts. Just as we saw Jesus comforting the broken in the Gospels, he's doing that through his spirit-empowered disciples in the book of Acts. Jesus continues his mission through the spirit-empowered church. And that's true not only in the book of Acts. It's true here today. Jesus has chosen to continue his mission, his mission in Carpinteria. And he wants to continue his mission in Carpinteria through the spirit-empowered church. So how does Jesus want to reach the lost in Carpinteria? through his spirit-empowered church? How does Jesus want to comfort the hurting in Carpinteria through his spirit-empowered church? How does Jesus want to bind up the brokenhearted in Carpinteria through his spirit-empowered church? How does Jesus want to set the captives free in Carpinteria through his spirit-empowered church? Through you, through us, And you can't think at this point, well, well, yeah, like someone else will do that. No, you are the someone else. That Jesus is continuing his mission here and he's called us not only to himself, but into that mission. It's happening. That's why we're here. It's happening in Carpinteria. It's happening all over the world. There's a theologian in India named Fanai Hrenkuma and he says this, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, the redemptive reign of God in Jesus Christ should be manifested in the church. So you can see that happening in this story with Tabitha, that Jesus is at work in and through Peter. But I want you to notice again this this use of the word rise. It says, Tabitha, arise. That word again is that Greek word anastemi. It's a word that's used to describe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you could translate this of what, what Peter says to her in verse 40, Tabitha, resurrect. And in verse 41, and he gave her his hand and resurrected her. What's happening here is you're seeing the connection between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection life. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the grave. He is risen. It's something that happened in history that shapes all of eternity. It's good news proclaimed of what Christ has done. But what Christ did then can change our lives today. And you're seeing that connection here between Christ's resurrection and how we can have resurrection life. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection. But he also said, I have come that they may have life. That they may have life. And when he said that, he used a Greek word, uh, zoe, for life. And what's important about that is there's different words in Greek for life. There's the word bios, for example. It's where we get biology. Uh, that bios is talking about physical life. That you've got air in your lungs and you're, you've got a, a heart beating in your chest. Zoe is different. He doesn't just say, I have come that they may have bios. He says, I have come that they may, ha- that they may have zoe. Zoe is, is, is not only physical life, it's spiritual life. It's abundant life. It's eternal life. That's what Jesus offers. And this truly is life changing. We've got to remember that becoming a Christian isn't a matter of changing a few beliefs here and there or habits here and there. It's going from death to life. Salvation is not us working hard to be a good person and then God taking care of the rest. It's a shift in being that's as radical as going from not having a heartbeat to having a heartbeat. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us today through faith. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us that there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power to turn your life around. There is power to heal your wounds. There is power to redeem your past. There's power to direct your future. There's power to forgive your sin. There's power to give you hope. There's power to bring you joy. There's power to break the chains. There's power to put your feet on solid ground. There's power to give you a new name. Amen? See, this story, these stories we hear about Aeneas and Tabitha, but it's ultimately about Jesus. You've got two very different stories, two difficult situations, but it's the same remedy. The story of Aeneas' sickness reveals the healing power of Jesus. The story of Tabitha's death shows the resurrection power of Jesus. The example of Peter shows the ongoing work of Jesus. The whole book of Acts is shining a spotlight on Jesus. And we too 
can experience the resurrection power of Jesus. We can say, like the Apostle Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Can you say that today? That you've been crucified with Christ, that you've laid down your life, that that out of our spiritual death, the grasping for the very thing we were made for and longing for that just takes us deeper, that we've laid that down and it's Christ who lives within us. This is good news to us. But we also need to remember when we talk about the resurrection power of Jesus, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that the, the resurrection has within it Uh, the crucifixion, that the one who raised was the crucified one. And so when when we're reminded of his resurrection and his glory and the fullness of joy that we can have in him, we're also mindful of the cross. We remember what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 17, where it says, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That Christ died and he was risen that we too will live the way of the cross, a way of self-denial, a way of being able to endure suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God. And yet we have the power of the resurrection. There's there's a a geographical detail in this story that, uh, that you might not notice at first, but I think has some significance. Three times... Luke mentions here Joppa three times, which is interesting because, I mean, we know, we know the story. We know what's happening in Joppa. Like, why does he keep reminding us that this is in Joppa? Probably didn't notice it. I didn't notice it for the first time, to be honest with you. But uh, the, the first century readers of this, uh, something probably would have come to mind for all of them when they heard of Joppa. Joppa was a city that uh, was well known in the Old Testament for a particular story. Joppa was the place that Jonah ran to when he ran away from the Lord. That God was pursuing him and when he ran, he went to Joppa. And so when they heard Joppa, they maybe would have thought of Jonah running away from the Lord. But while Joppa was the place where Jonah ran away from the Lord, now Joppa is the place where the Lord is running after his people. That he is pursuing them with love and mercy and powerful compassion to bring healing and new life. And Jesus himself talked about Jonah. Once when the Pharisees questioned him and asked for a sign, he said, the only sign you need is the sign of Jonah said, just as Jonah went into the belly of the fish and came out, he says, the son of man's going to go into the belly of the earth, but he's going to rise three days later. Jesus was telling us then what, what was going to take place through his death and his resurrection. That again is this center point that changes everything going out from there, that we're seeing the ripple effects of Acts in. And so it's through the death and resurrection of Christ that we're reconciled to God, that we experience this same healing and this resurrection power of Jesus. This is good news. 
And this story ends in Acts 9, in verse 42, by saying, uh, and saying, and many believed in the Lord. The response to seeing the resurrection power of Jesus is trust, faith, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the response to this good news of an open-handed reception of God's grace and a posture of surrender. And faith isn't just a one-time decision. It's an ongoing dependence on Christ. It's an ongoing entrusting our lives to Jesus, saying, have your way with me. Whatever you're going through today, trust in Christ. Entrust your situation. Entrust your life. Entrust yourself into his hands. He's alive. And I want to remind you that this isn't just, um, this isn't just good news for us to receive as individuals. Uh, it certainly is. We all come in here with different situations and dealing with different things as individuals, and it's good news. But this is good news to the church, to the community of God who's been reconciled to God and to one another. You see this particularly in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, We are dead in our sins, that we too are like Tabitha, lifeless having no ability to be able to to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to be able to work our way to God, to build our resume, to say, look what I've done for you, Lord. Here's what I bring to the table. We are dead in our sins. But then in Ephesians 2, it says this. It says, but God in his mercy made us alive together with Christ. That means that we don't experience the resurrection power of Jesus as individuals, we experience it together. United to Christ, as the body of Christ, we need each other for that. And God draws us into that. So I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. Th- think, about it, think about it like this. A lot, of people, uh, a lot of people think of the church like a cruise ship. You ever been on a cruise? You know what it's like. You go on a cruise, you sit around, you... You, you let other people serve you. And what happens on a cruise is that you've got um, a small group of people who do most of the work, the staff. They cook and they clean and they do the shows and get everything ready. And then you have a large group of people who are along for the ride, right? Who enjoy and, you know, critique every once in a while. But they're just along for the ride. Well, a lot of people think of the church like a cruise ship that there's a small group of people who do all the work. Maybe that's the pastors, maybe that's the staff, maybe that's whoever you think are like the super Christians who are like really involved. There's a small group of people who do all the work. And then there's a large group of people who are just along for the ride to show up, to take when they can, critique the paid professionals when they want to. But here's the thing. The church isn't a cruise ship, it's a battleship. It's a battleship that's been given a mission. And on a battleship, you don't have two groups of people, one who does all the work and then another who are along for the ride. On a battleship, everyone's got a job. Everyone's got a job doing something different because they've been called to a particular mission. And the church is a people who have been made alive together, 
who have, been ex- who have experienced the resurrection power of Jesus and drawn into the mission of Jesus. And so we trust in Christ and then we follow after him in the work that he's doing. It's all grace. It's all the power of his grace. And so let's respond to that with faith, with praise, and then living for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have poured out your grace upon us in Jesus Christ. We hear the message, the announcement that he died for our sins, that he rose from the grave, and that we can have new life in him. God, I pray that that everyone in here right now, that we too would be able to see our names in line with Aeneas and Tabitha as people who have experienced the healing and resurrecting power of Jesus. We trust in you, and where we struggle to trust in you, we ask that you would help us to trust in you. Lord, we pray that in this time, as we respond and worship, that your spirit would minister to us, that your love would melt away any hardness of heart, that your mercy would would bring together what's falling apart in our lives. Would you bring your restoration and your reconciliation in this place now as we take our eyes off of ourselves and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we love you. We look to you. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.